When a seasoned sports fan teams up with a millennial, opinions may vary, but the debates assuredly won't disappoint. Check your sources. It's New Report, Old Report. Here's your hosts, John Lund and Al Renato. Yes, indeed. Hello, everyone. I'm John Lund alongside Al Renato, a.k.a. as New York sports fans know him, the great Al in White Plains. And this is New Report, Old Report, here on Monday, October 22nd from 8 to 9 Eastern Time, live on Sports Radio America. If you missed the live show, you can catch the replay the rest of the week, also at 8 p.m. Eastern, or find the show as bonus content under the Bridge Sports Podcast, found on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, really wherever you get your podcasts or at londonbridge.com. This week, we're all over a preview of the World Series. Now between the Dodgers and Red Sox, week seven of the NFL season, week eight in college football, with commentary on the biggest surprises and storylines from Saturday and Sunday, a rundown of our picks in this week's six-pack segment, with perhaps my best week yet, LeBron's first game in Los Angeles, as the Lakers welcome home the king, and more. Check your sources. We're off. Now, what would be the odds that that was happening again, that that wasn't a new report? Was that a new report or an old report? That's what I'm asking. Is it a new report or an old report? Is that a new report? Or we don't know. Well, Al, another exciting week in athletics and exciting in the fact as well that all of the major sports at different points of their seasons, but still exciting in their own right. One of those is reaching its ending point, its conclusion, its most exciting time, and that is Major League Baseball. The World Series is set. The Los Angeles Dodgers make it through seven games to advance in the National League. The Red Sox pretty much cruise past the Astros in the American League to get us to where we are for a fall classic between two of the sport's most historic franchises. Surprised, shocked, happy, sad. How are we feeling about this World Series we're going to see soon? Not surprised, thrilled. Uh, first of all, I hope you had a great week. Um, and always great to speak with you and, and with everybody out there. We hope uh, everybody had a wonderful week. And October, as you alluded to, is one of the best sports months if you're a fan of all the majors and not concentrated on one. But, you know, we focus on the fall classic because that is the sport that's at its apex. And I'm, even though I don't have an interest in either one of these teams as a Cardinal fan, as a baseball fan, I'm very fired up for, you know, an East-West series, basically. Dodgers-Red Sox, first time in modern-day history, the last time that these two franchises played each other in the World Series, they weren't even the Brooklyn Dodgers. All right. Uh, I believe it was the Brooklyn Maroons, if memory serves me correct, but it was not the Dodgers. Are you Babe around Ruth, to watch the Maroons I or is that a little bit it. too far back? I just missed it. All right. <laughs> uh, faint memories of, paper, of, of newspaper articles, but Babe Ruth was the star pitcher for the Red Sox. Um, and these are the two, uh, two of the three oldest parks. Uh, believe it or not, the Dodgers uh, play in the oldest park in the, Nas- in the National League other than Wrigley. And obviously, uh, Fenway is the oldest park in the American League. We have two storied franchises. 
We have the team that's been the best team in baseball all year long in the Red Sox, who brought question marks into the postseason with their ace, Chris Sale, having some issues, still issues. Uh, so that's still a question mark in terms of his health, both arm and stomach. And David Price, uh, their number two pitcher, who was and always has been miserable in the postseason, gets his first postseason win against the defending champion Astros through six tremendous innings uh, in that series to finally get his first W. Uh, so he's going to go in game two. Clayton Kershaw throws a gem in the biggest game of the series, the NLCS, to put them up 3-2 in game five. Closes, not that it's a close, but finishes off a 5-1 win in game seven. So everyone is on full rest. Everyone is ready to rock. Uh, it's a series where you'll see some intriguing things. We could see, uh, in all probability, the AL MVP Mookie Betts come in from right field and play second base to allow his teammate and DH, J.D. Martinez, play in the National League Park uh, in the outfield and probably play right field. Uh, it's a series where we will see for a change a scenario where the National League is not at a big disadvantage in the American League Park because the Dodgers are chock full of hitters who pile over the boards for both the right and left side of the plate, uh, either any of whom can act as a DH. So they really are not strapped by having to take a bench player, so to speak, and use him as a DH. So they will not be at a disadvantage there, even though they were the team that uh, had a much tougher fight to get here and a much more middling regular season to get here. Uh, I think they're the best team in the National League. I think they're the most versatile team in the National League. And all I am hoping for is a long series, because I can't get enough of this. I think it's got a chance to be a terrific series. And uh, hopefully with these two franchises, uh, America, ratings-wise, will be excited about it as well. Yeah, and a couple things on each, starting with the American League and the Astros and Red Sox series. I was surprised, not necessarily with the end results. I think the Red Sox were the better team. That might just be from watching them a little bit more than the Astros, but they seemed to be the most complete. I was surprised with how quickly the series ended and Houston not being able to win games at home. That surprised me getting swept in a sense when it seemed like that was going to be the series that went the seven games. That would have been the one that we were on our edge of our seat. Which way was it going to go? And in a sense, they cruised. They cruised to the victories. Very impressive to see what they were able to do and end that thing as quickly as they did. What surprised me from the Houston side was the pitching was where I had them at an advantage pretty much up and down through the board from starter through the bullpen. As a full pitching staff, I thought they would be the better staff, and it was the pitching that proved to be their downfall. I mean, giving up seven runs or more in three consecutive ball games, that's not how you're going to win ALCS games. It was amazing to see that in both senses, the offense of the Red Sox doing that against the Astros and taking them out of games. The Astros are a great offensive team, but there gets to be a point where too much is too much, and we saw that happen. The controversial home run catch interference didn't necessarily cause the game or be what decided the game because well, it was let's early. Start, let's start with that in terms of what did you think of the call, both originally made by Joe West 
and the ultimate resolution when they went to replay in New York. What, what were your thoughts on that? I was surprised Joe West was as confident as he was in calling it interference right away, just because I think that's a judgment call in that case. And we've seen this happen throughout baseball many a time where a fielder goes up with his glove and there's fans obviously going for the home run. It's usually a home run call and then they might call an interference afterward. I was surprised he was as confident as he was in calling an interference right away. From watching Mookie attack the wall and one mixtape tour-esque in going up for this leap, it just looked like his momentum, even before this happened, was going to take his arm into the stands. And that's what I thought was going to happen before he leapt, and that's what I thought the end result was as well. Unfortunately, I haven't seen it, and I don't know if anyone else has. We didn't, certainly didn't see it on the broadcast. There's no camera angle at the side of the wall. And well, there was, the one, there, there was the angle that was blocked by the security. Right. Because there's, there's the examples at, say, Yankee Stadium that we've seen countless times where they have that camera right on the side of the fence and you could see where that imaginary line is and make that judgment a lot easier. The only angles we were seeing didn't give us the depth that we needed to see where his arm was. I've watched it countless times, as I'm sure a lot of baseball fans have. I'm telling you, if you're the Astros, I understand the anger and disbelief that that's what they went with. I don't know if Joe West's decision was what made them keep that call the same, where they just went by what was based on the field because there wasn't conclusive evidence. Part of me thinks, hey, I mean, let's get the call right. It doesn't matter what Joe West said. Let's make sure we get this call right. And they waited a long time to make that decision. To me, it was a home run. Here's the way I look at it. No pun intended. Um, first of all, if I was an Astro fan, I would be livid. But after the, looking at it, and you know, we go back to Jeffrey Mayer when Richie Garcia did not have the guts to make the call and got it completely wrong. Yeah, that, that was interference. <laughs> and, it, and if not for Jeffrey Mayer, the Yankee run may have never started. I think as a result of that call, umpires, for the most part, are going to err on the side of fan interference and are going to err on the side of the player and let replay make the correction because I think they're going to always want to give the player the benefit of the doubt. That's number one, and I think a Jeffrey Mayer play caused that and will always cause that. Number two, by the naked eye, when I first saw it, I thought it was a home run and he went in. But when I looked at it on the replay a bunch of times, you know, all I could do was go to basketball and apply the principle of verticality. And I, I thought Mookie went up. I could not tell if he went in. And it looked to me like one guy in particular went out and over and hit him before he went in. And that alone is enough for me to at least understand how the call was upheld, confirmed, not overturned, whichever language you want to use to simply say there wasn't enough to overturn it. Very, very tough call if you're an Astro fan. I can understand them being pissed, but the bottom line is they came back in that ser that game, they took the lead, and they were beating the entire series by the better team.
Right, yeah. Plain and, and simple. Don't give up was, seven was, runs that was, game in the first place. So it, it, it was a tough call. Tough calls happen. Okay, you get some. Some go against you. And look, the, the Red Sox got it from areas which we weren't sure they were going to get it from. Right? Sale wasn't very good. Price, in his second start, was off the charts. Evaldi was just as good as he was against your team. Again, uh, the bullpen, the middle relief, the much maligned middle relief, for the most part, especially in Houston, the Red Sox middle relief in Houston was terrific. Sometimes bolstered by the starters, Evaldi, um, coming out of the pen, and Price ready to come out of the pen, but not coming out of the pen. And their closer, who you know I have questions with and issues with, you know, barely hanging on. And but hanging that, on. And, and, and that's going to carry over into the World Series as well. The Dodger closure is throwing much better than the Red Sox closure. Looks far more dominant right now. Is, is throwing as the best he's thrown since he came back uh, from the, the heart ailment. Uh, when he was out, uh, you know, on the DL and not allowed to go to Colorado, uh, is, is Jansen throwing much better right now uh, than the uh, the Red Sox closer, who is always shaky in the postseason. But regardless, the Red Sox were the better team. Their outfield defense, fabulous, one of the best handful of defensive outfields I've seen in my lifetime. Uh, probably the best defensive outfield uh, since the A's teams with the, with Dwayne Murphy and Tony Armas and a young Ricky Henderson. This is an outfield with three legitimate center fielders who not only can get to pretty much anything with a bump in it, they all have wonderful throwing arms, and it makes for a fabulous, fabulous outfield. They took, they took, they took base hits away. They took home runs away. They took extra base hits away. I mean, the catch by Ben Intendi to, you know, to end game five, uh, excuse me, game three, four, uh, really put the hammer down to make it 3-1 where if that ball gets by him uh, it probably clears the basis and the Astros win at 4-2 right. uh, because you got to figure uh, with the bases loaded if it gets all the way by him to the wall uh, it's going to clear the bases with two up great catch, gutsy catch to go for it uh, Jackie Bradley catches everything under the sun and we know how great Mookie Betts is in right field so um, I, I, I just think that they were Despite the fact that they came in with question marks, uh, all those question marks were answered with the exception, really, of Chris Sale. Because we still don't know what we're going to get in the World Series with Chris Sale. I'm not saying we know what we're going to get with David Price. We're going to get that guy who was lights out and the postseason start of his life. But at least in that game, he was, yes, spectacular. But you figure now you can ex hope and expect you know, that he's going to pitch well and not be the David Price who's never won a game, uh, the guy who's going to give you two and a third with you know, five runs. You don't expect that from Price in this World Series. What you need from Chris Sale, you just don't know. Because he's been such a question mark for the last six weeks of the regular season and in the postseason because of his health. So that, that remains up for grabs. Uh, you know, the Dodgers, uh, Kershaw, you know, fabulous in the most important game of the year, game five. Uh, Walker Bueller, Terrific last night, even though we gave up some hits, but you know, gutted it out. Great stuff. Gives the Dodgers the right-hander they really haven't had the last years in the postseason because they've been a lefty-dominant staff. Uh, the middle relief, 
and Jansen have all been terrific. The versatility of the lineup. Bellinger making great plays in the outfield. The catch by Chris Turner last Chris Taylor last night that basically saves the lead, which was huge with two outs in the bottom of the fifth. Um, you know, to keep the game at two one before uh, the three run bomb by Puig, which really put the game away. I, I just think it has a chance to be a terrific series. I think these are the best teams in each league. It panned out, and uh, I, I, I'm hoping it's going to be as good as I think it's going to be. You know this as a Cardinals fan, and I know this as a Yankees fan, and anyone that has watched their teams, luckily enough, win the World Series knows this as well. And as Doggy would say, excuse my French, but you have to get a lot of shit to go right to get to the World Series and to win the World Series. And it's not just the simple things or the we'll see calls that happen to go your way instead of for the other team. You need the he's due guys to come through when they come up to the plate or they're on the mound and they haven't done well in a long time. You need the random guys like your Jackie Bradley Jr. to be the ALCS MVP. The Red Sox crossed pretty much everything off that list of having everything go right when they needed to. That home run call goes in their favor. Benatendi dives, he makes the catch, the bases are loaded, but the game's over. Chris Sale can't pitch after the first game, he doesn't really have his best stuff. David Price comes in, mows everybody down in the clincher. Evaldi is brilliant, Purcello is great. We mentioned Jackie Bradley. J.D. Martinez did his thing when he needed to. Everything clicked perfectly. All the moves that Alex Cora made, pinch hitting, moving guys around, everything Devers. worked out well. Devers, yes, uh, comes through. Devers, the three-run bomb. Everything uh, I mean. you could imagine went correct. And that's what you need to have happen to get to the World Series, and then you got to hope that it happens when you're in the World Series so you can win it. You can and be the, the best team side, in the world, but in baseball – you need so, shit to go so your many way. variables. So many variables. And on the flip side, in the National League, I still believe, and you know, as I said today you know, on MLB, good guy, great baseball guy, since he's a little kid, part of the organization, good player, two time world champion, excellent manager, but there are so many decisions that I disagreed with Craig Council. Uh, in this series, whether it's you know going to the bullpen early, trying to manage a game that way based upon you know yanking starters after an inning, two innings, you know one batter, you know too early, whatever the case may be, uh, you know wearing your bullpen out, uh, pulling guys too early, but the uh, of all the decisions, of all the decisions, I will never in my life understand. And and, and this, if, if I can relate it to another sport. You know, probably that the worst decision I've ever seen in major sports on the big stage in, in, in my lifetime was Seattle throwing the ball from the two yard line in the Super Bowl with a chance just to hand it off to Lynch to win the game. And if you didn't get stopped, kill the clock and then do whatever you want with your timeout, make Bill Belichick use his, whatever the case may be, and throw a game losing interception, which is mind numbing. Well, what rivaled that was the decision by Craig Council uh, in the bottom of the 13th with Corey Bellinger at the plate and 
the game-winning run at second base with two out after Manny Machado moved up on a wild pitch last fastball. First base open, and the hideous, and I mean hideous, the worst postseason hitter I've seen since Nick Swisher, all right, also a switch hitter, Chismani Grindal on deck. Dave Roberts has nowhere else to go. Behind Grindal is the pitcher's spot, and he's out of players. So even if you wanted to walk Grindal after you walk Ballinger, all right, and load the bases or pitch carefully to Grindal, not that you would have any desire to because he's hideous. Craig Council chooses to pitch to Cody Bellinger with Gismani Grindal on deck, a lifetime postseason average of under 100, 40% strikeout rate. And remember, this is a switch hitter. So that's how bad we're talking about. He's a switch hitter, and he's striking out. He's striking out with the bases loaded this year. He's striking out with guys on second and third. He's hitting in the bases loaded double play. It's nonstop. He's getting booed by his home crowd. Pass ball after, you know, two pass balls in an air and, you know, with Kershaw on the mound that mucks up that game. He's benched finally by Dave Roberts. As long as this manager is managing, if he never gets to another World Series, he will never get over the fact. He will never sleep. I would never sleep over the fact that I decided to pitch to Cody Bellinger, which is Monty Grindel on deck in the bottom of the 13th in a 1-1 game and give him a walk-off base hit with that guy on deck. Fun fact about Craig Council, to liven the mood, I believe I read this correctly. There's been four walk-off World Series victories. He's been on base for two of them. (laughs) So when he was a player... He got on base in those late games. That was a good sign. But I agree, uh, not to use a terrible joke, but some of his decisions were as ugly as his batting stance was, as people that got to see him play will maybe get that joke. Put one of those uh, drum kick lines in there for me, producer. I was also shocked, and this has been something that they've done throughout the entire series. We've already talked about bullpenning on this show, how we don't necessarily think it's the grandest of ideas. We saw him pull Wade Miley in game five after five pitches to supposedly switch the lineup around, and I don't which understand that move. Which, which it did Exactly. You know, I, I mean, you know, Miley was scheduled to start, and, and Dave Roberts had a, had a lefty leading off at Bellinger, right. and he had Muncie in the lineup. So it, it didn't do a great deal to flip anything. So that was nonsense. You know, th- this was a victory for the get-off-my-lawn crowd like yours truly. It was a victory for old school. Right? It was a, you, you have to use analytics absolutely positively. You have to use percentages, etc. But you also have to use common sense. You have to understand you know, that you can't overplay your hand, and you have to understand that you know, there are certain things that go on in front of you during a game. That means Wade Miley doesn't come out after he gives up a meaningless signal to Chris Taylor when he's got a two-run lead, all right, and, you know, in the sixth inning, when he's mowed down 15 in a row. Yeah, the reliever got out of it, got the out, but, you know, again, the bullpen didn't get the job done. And obviously, you know, the, the biggest culprit in this series was Jeffers. He went to him time after time after time after time, and he was worn out. And look, he almost spit the bit in game one against the Rockets. He almost blew that game. 
he, he, he was toast in this series. Game seven. Time after time. All hands on deck. Pitching gets in trouble. In comes in Josh Hader in the third. You can maybe swallow it. Understand, obviously, that he's their best pitcher out of the bullpen, and he was great in his relief appearance. They decided to not really push him to the max. I thought, ride this guy out as long as you possibly can. Have somebody up and ready if he gets into trouble, but wear his arm to the ground because he's all you got. Take him out in the sixth. Two guys get on. Here comes Yasiel Puig to the plate. The perfect time for Josh Hader to have entered the game would have arguably been then, and we get the three-run home run, and the game's pretty much in the bag. Not pretty much. Stick a fork at that game was Stick over. Stick a fork. That was it. That was the that game. That game was over. So for the bullpenning crowd, the couple ending games there, five, six, seven, not the best look. And, and that's kind of what we said. I can understand bullpending. Game two. Bull game in, two. Yeah. He bullpenned game two when it killed him when he pulled Miley too early. I could and see it. And spit the bit in game two. You could see it in a wild card game. You could see it. You could even argue in a five-game series because if it works, you're out of there in three. But for a seven-game series, these hitters start getting used to you. They start getting used to the trends that you might do. I don't see it being successful in a seven-game series. And for the first time, we really saw it put to the test. It was not. I think... This is going to be an incredible World Series. I think of the two teams, the Dodgers can at least keep up with the Red Sox. If it becomes a slugfest, if it becomes pitching duels, I think they're better matched. The Brewers were kind of that wild card team where you never knew what you were going to get from a day-in, day-out basis. They weren't going to hit the ball out of the ballpark four or five times in a game to keep up with an offense. It's going to be fun. That's all I can say. That's it's, all going I can say it's going to be fun. I hope, it, I hope it's a long series, as I said before, because I can't get enough baseball. And something else I'm looking forward to, um, I hate to bring this up for you as a Yankee fan, but I have to bring it up. I am hoping we're going to get full coverage of the introduction of not only the lineups, but the coaching staffs, because I... No, if I was a Red Sox fan, a die-in-the-wall, old-school Red Sox fan, I would be up, I would be screaming, and I would be leading a standing ovation when they introduced Dave Roberts. Because if not for the stolen base against Mariano Rivera in Game 4 that got him into scoring position to ultimately score on Bill Miller's two-out base hit to tie that game, started the comeback, we have no idea if Red Sox Nation is even in existence. We have no idea if they win any of these three championships. I am 60 years old. That is the biggest, most important stolen base of my lifetime. And he was the guy who got it. So I fully hope that Red Sox fans filling that building in game one will give him a resounding standing ovation when he gets introduced because it's only right. Al, you have no idea how excited I will be to see that replay of the stolen base over and over and over from our friends at Fox. Because, boy, there's going to be, I'd put the over under at at least two and a half per game, depending on the situation. So, folks, strap in because we are going to be reminded time and again, and deservedly so. I'll tell you what, the loudest cheer you might hear at Boston could be for Dave Roberts, and the loudest boo you might hear could be for Manny Machado. No doubt about it. Wouldn't have no it any other way at Fenway. 
it's going to be a fun series, as we mentioned, and looking forward to it. Hopefully going long and, and providing us great storylines and things to talk about for the upcoming weeks. Let's take a quick break to pay the bills. He's Al Renato. I'm John Lund. We'll be right back with the new report, old report, here on Sports Radio America. We welcome you back. I'm John Lund. He's Al Renato, and this is the new report, old report. But it's time to switch to the pigskin and into the National Football League, which this week was interesting. On paper, from what I can tell, not a ton of upsets if you think about it, but there were a couple close ones that could have gone either way and a couple of as there always are. Wow, I can't believe that happened. One of those, and we don't know what the end result would have been, but we could have at least had longer to figure it out, happened with your favorite team in the now of Baltimore, Ravens. Justin Tucker, the best kicker I've ever seen. Well, I shouldn't say that. Top three easily, because Adam Vinatieri, shockingly, is still playing football, and he has won Super Bowl championships, but he is he's up there. As you texted me, 222. What happened? One of those days. It just happened at the worst time. Just when you you think you saw it all. My Ravens, with with their supposed, alleged, overrated, great defense, beating up on a hideous Titan offense, bullying them to 11 sacks, out to a 17-7 lead in the third quarter, then boom, down New Orleans goes down the field to make it 17-14, three and out, down the field again they go to make it 21-17, you know, as, as the defense just crumbles. Uh, Flacco takes them down the field, uh, converts one-fourth down, fails on a second. New Orleans from their own 35, back down the field, field goal to go 24-17, and then Flacco takes them down the field, and they score with 20-plus odd seconds to go. And out comes Justin Tucker, who is 222 for 222 in his NFL career. Mr. Automatic, uh, the greatest kicker. And I go back to Jan Stenerud. I go back to Lou Rose. But Jan Stenerud is, is to me, the, 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 the really measuring stick by which I judge all kickers. And I think Justin Tucker is the greatest kicker I've ever seen. He's the highest uh, percentage uh, field goal kicker in the history of the game. Uh, He hasn't been around for two years anymore. Now he's been around for about uh, eight years. He's never missed an extra point. And lo and behold, at 24-23, the last thing you would ever expect to happen is for Justin Tucker to miss the extra point. And he blasts it right down the middle, and all of a sudden – in an incredibly short distance, uh, whether it was just it, it, just that the way he hit it. Yeah, that, that was like my golf shot. Let's or, put it or, that or, way. On a windy day in the Northeast, uh, out, out of nowhere came a sudden gust of wind. But somehow, someway, the football almost took a hard right uh, to just outside the upright. And uh, overtime turns into a 24-23 Raven loss. They dropped to four and three in the very tough North, uh, playing the AF, the, the NFC South, still have to play Atlanta, still have to play Carolina. Uh, so they have a very tough road to hoe, not to mention their, their AFC North schedule. 
so that was a very debilitating loss for the Ravens today. Uh, obviously, no idea what would happen in overtime, but we will never know uh, as a result of something we never thought we were going to say. I would say the biggest shock to me as far as losses go, just based on both teams, would be the Panthers coming back with 21 points in the fourth quarter to beat the Eagles 21-17. The Eagles have a great defense. The Eagles are the defending Super Bowl champs. The Panthers have been up and down. You never know what you're going to expect with Cam, how his arm's going to look on a specific day. It didn't look like they had it. And then all of a sudden, it was like two switches were flipped and it became a completely different game. And now the Eagles are not looking too great at three and four. Well, you know, it really is surprising because this is, these are the world champs. And you expect a team that is coming off this much success and that's this good to be able to put teams away and. This is the second time now, because remember, they were up 17-3 against a very mediocre Tennessee team and gave that game away. Two fourth down conversions, and they lost in overtime. I expected this to be a very good game. Not the way it turned out to be, though. When it was 17-0, it was like, oh, okay, it's the typical Carolina, go on the road, stinker, game over. You know, Philly rounding into form after a pasting of the Giants. And the next thing you know, they're down 21-17. And you know, on the ropes, they get in deep into uh, Carolina territory and are unable to convert. And the defending champs are 3-4 and four, with their quarterback back and looking relatively healthy. Right. So uh, a, a, a very surprising loss uh, to me as well. You know, two more that ended via kicks. Uh, the Browns, again, doing what only the Browns can do, uh, come back from way down, go into overtime, and lose uh, against Tampa on a 59 field goal in overtime. All we have to say is it's the Browns. And we move on uh, to Cowboys and Redskins, big game in the NFC East. Uh, Redskins play terrific defensively. Cowboys come back, uh, score late to get within three, get a three and out go down the field, get very conservative in the last drive, but wind up with what looks like a 47-yard field goal to tie it. Uh, their young kicker, terrific, plenty of lag. And then get called for an illegal snap, which was an awful call. The center doing what he always does in terms of just getting the ball ready to make the snap. Um, instead of an offside, it's a five-yard penalty against Dallas that moves it back five yards, 52 yards. It's high enough. It's long enough. Clank. It's off the left upright because it hooked a little bit. 47, it's clearly good. 42, it's good easily. But 52, uh-uh. And the Redskins are now the leaders uh, in the NFC East. Another thing that surprised me, too, and maybe it shouldn't because I – Unfortunately, I've never really been a believer in this quarterback, and that's with the Jacksonville Jaguars, who decided to bench Blake Bortles in favor of, let me get out my uh, encyclopedia here of the National Football League, Cody Kessler. Great. Cody Kessler coming into the game for the Jags, who were going up against a team that 
drafted one of the quarterbacks that would have been available to them had they decided to go in that direction, and Deshaun Watson instead going with Fournette, who did not play in the game because of injury, and he has spent, unfortunately, most of his career injured. They benched this guy. They didn't win the game. The Texans actually didn't look too bad. Hopkins, to me, is is 1A, if not 1, of the best receiver in the National Football League. Every week he seems to impress. I can't say that this decision to bench Blake Bortles surprised me. I mean, he hasn't had great games throughout his career. This one was unfortunate. Several turnovers, it just seemed like maybe he was going to be in his own head too much with it, so they just decided to bench him. But a red flag for a team that... <laughs> You know, the Patriots lose to some dogs in the postseason. Can we say that for as good of a dynasty as they've been? These, these Jaguars beat them last year, really? <laughs> well, the Jaguars played terrific last year in the postseason. And you know, Doug Marone, after the game today, uh, was very straightforward. He said, I benched the quarterback uh, because he's the lead guy. If I could have benched everybody uh, on the offensive side of the ball, I would have benched everybody but I don't have enough guys to bench all well, 11. Well, I'll just quickly add to that. I, I read these statistics as we go on on CBS Sports. It gives you the leading passer and rusher and receiver, obviously. The, rece- the rusher, I should say, that has the highlight for this week for the Jaguars, Blake Bortles, 30 yards and a touchdown. Right. That's not going to win you a football right. game. They were awful offensively. Uh, and this is a team that we've seen look at times unstoppable offensively in terms of the way they run the ball. And when they complement the pass uh, off the run, they looked abysmal today. Uh, The quarterback looked awful. They're a different team when they don't have Ferret to to bang the football. Played the first half of the game against the Giants. We haven't seen him since. I don't know when we'll see him again. Uh, I just know that as long as Blake Bortles is the quarterback, uh, you're not going to have an offense that can be led on a consistent basis because he is so incredibly inconsistent. Um, and the only thing that he's been consistent about, contrary to what I just said in the last few games, is he's been awful. Uh, whether it's turnovers, bad throws uh, in the red zone, turnovers in his own end today, a fumble on a scramble deep in his own territory. Uh, just it, it, it's getting... Very, very bad for a team that a lot of people said had Super Bowl aspirations, including yours truly. Uh, And I actually thought he had turned the corner, and he has clearly regressed. Will they be able to right the ship? Fortunately for them, they're in a division that is totally up for grabs without any dominant team, with them not being dominant. So uh, they are still right in the thick of the division at three and four after the third straight loss. But you know, they've been pummeled now three weeks in a row. And they've looked awful three weeks in a row. So, and notice we haven't heard much of a peep out of Jalen Ramsey three weeks in a row. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's Doug Marone has his work cut out for him and, you know, really wonder what are they going to do with the quarterback spot. Texans standing tall at four and three in that division at this point. About... Ten minutes or so left. I want to make sure we have time to maybe get a little bit excitable about the Lakers or not. We'll see what Al has to say about that. We can say that our power rankings for the show in the NFL, as they probably are around America, the Chiefs and the Rams 
No reason to necessarily change our minds. Well, Chiefs and Patriots tied, I guess, for one. Rams. Rams again. Rams, Chiefs slash Patriots. Right. And then we have the rest of the league fighting for everything else. Exactly. And we need we need all these remaining weeks to see where else everybody stands because there hasn't been a lot of teams that have decided to make any sort of run to catch those guys. Let's take a quick break to pay the bills. He's Al Renato. I'm John Lund. We'll be right back with the new report, old report here on Sports Radio America. We welcome you back. I'm John Lund. He's Al Renato, and this is the new report, old report. Quickly to college football, the biggest upset, the biggest shock was Purdue's bludgeoning of the Ohio State Buckeyes. Shocked is is probably too kind of a word, but I could give you uh, 30 seconds to a minute or two minutes here to, to maybe throw a little bit at uh, the Buckeyes for losing to the Boilermakers in, in pretty impressive fashion, actually. It wasn't quite as bad as Iowa of last year, which was a complete and total obliteration. This game was closer than the final score indicated because of a couple late touchdowns uh, on big plays and on defense. But uh, they got taken apart again on the road in a, in a building where they have struggled uh, in in you know since 2000. They have struggled uh, at Ross Eight Stadium and a pretty good. Purdue team that struggled early in the season, playing much better now, very good at home, uh, both sides of the ball, clearly outplayed Ohio State. And similar to the NFL, suddenly now we have these teams falling by the wayside where all of a sudden when we had so many undefeated teams and it looked so clear cut with the Final Four, now the one-loss teams are back. Uh, LSU in the totally and completely right in the thick of things, uh, but they will have to play you know, Alabama in, you know, in two weeks, both with a bye week, another quality win for them against Mississippi State. Alabama rolls on with a pummeling of Tennessee. Uh, Ohio State now on the back burner right now, and lo and behold, look who jumps to the forefront, Michigan with a huge win against Michigan State in East Lansing. So, you know, Georgia obviously has fallen out of favor with their loss at LSU. Notre Dame right in the mix. Uh, you know, and, and, and your Clemson squad just rolls on. Uh, the only real scare they've had all year has been against Syracuse, which is really the best thing Syracuse has done all year was the loss to Clemson because no one else can even stay in the building right. against Clemson. As they take apart an NC State team that I thought would compete as part of our six-pack, we want mano a mano. Once again, you were right. I was dead wrong as Dabo Sweeney's squad just absolutely clubbed previously undefeated NC State 41 to 7. Well, I was expecting Clemson to have one of those, hey, we're here type games. They didn't really have it against Texas A&M. It was probably too close to comfort for them. And as far as going up against a ranked opponent, even though NC State Maybe not a lot of people believed in them, but still 16, nothing to stick your nose up at. I thought this was a game that they were going to show everybody, like, we're for real. This whole quarterback thing has been on everybody's mind with Trevor Lawrence and Kelly Bryant. Hey, we're still going to dominate, and I thought they might do it this game. And shockingly enough, I was right, which could get us into this week's six-pack. We could start with you. 
Well, uh, you know, back on the beam in college, back on the beam <laughs> in college with, with, with a solid uh, two and one. My one loss, of course, was, was mano a mano with you. Uh, as I, I believed NC State would compete, they never did. That game was over from a uh, actual one loss scenario very early, and it was over plus 17 or 17 and a half, whichever number you had very early. As NC State really never even threatened on the offensive side of the ball, that's 0 1 for me. You get the Duke. Uh, I had. Uh, the uh, uh, the fighting Hawkeyes of Iowa uh, minus nine, who had a comfortable twenty three nothing win of typical Iowa nuts and bolts kind of control the football, ram it down your throat. Yeah, it was a good uh, shout they, out for they, Iowa they, on they, our they show. They know who give them they some are. Love. Yeah. Okay. So let's give Iowa you know a, a little bit of love there, and you know I I stuck with with the Bayou Tigers. Uh, at home on a Saturday night where they're so tough uh, against a, a ranked Mississippi State team who can't throw the ball, and it was bludgeon football for quite a while. It was 7-3 for a long time, uh, but you know, eventually with turnovers and good special teams, four field goals became 19-3, to you know, and LSU covered uh, the, uh, the six and a half. Yeah, we might be... In the eye of potentially my best six-pack to date, I'm sure one of the interns for our show will figure out the math and see if that's correct, but you mentioned Clemson. I hated that 17-and-a-half. I think that's way too high in any sport, but they end up covering in grand fashion. I went with Washington State because of the love they finally got from college game day as well oh, as... What, uh, what, what, and, and, and what a game day that was. It was. Very One, one of the all-time great game days. It really was. That crowd was wild. The town was on fire. You know, emergency vehicles only. <laughs> uh, that, that was just, it, it was fabulous. It, it was great. If you're a sports fan and a college football fan, which I am, that was just great to watch. That was a blast to watch. And Ryan Leaf, being an alum, as folks may know, produced for him stepping in as a guest co-host or potential all-the-time co-host on SiriusXM Mad Dog Sports Radio Saturday Night Nightcap, so figured I'd throw him a bone as well with that. Unfortunately, I went with Michigan State plus seven and a half. I enjoyed that half, thought that that would come in handy. Haven't watched a lot of Michigan State. Glad I have not because that offense looked putrid. Horrendous game on both sides. Hail was coming down, which was funny in a sense. Hail to the victors, literally, when Michigan finally won the game. But a terrible game to watch. I, I don't even mind that that was the loss because, sweet Lord. To the NFL, and we both benefited from the Vikings. Uh, that was one where I just figured, uh, you know, I, I, I'm just going to take the better team, plain and simple. I'm, I'm going to take the team that's more experienced. Uh, I, I'm going to take the team that, that, sooner or later has got to go out and play a quality game against a team that they're better than and beat them. And the Vikings weren't great today, uh, but they took advantage of mistakes, uh, tough conditions to throw in. They ran the ball well. They had some big plays, uh, you know, kickoff return, uh, some, some big plays running the football. And... Uh, they got the Duke against the Jets, who who battled. 
and who have shown that they will battle against teams that might be better than them. But you know, this was just, in my mind, I, I'm going to take the better team, you know, minus a field goal on the road because I think they're probably a, a touchdown or more better. So I, I thought it was kind of cheap, and, you know, for a change, I was right. Chargers, though, minus six and a half. Too close of a game. <laughs> Unfortunately for them, uh, they, they well, do win, I, but they don't cover. I, 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 on the Charger front, uh, I have to tell you, I, I am always anti-tight. I told you that. I, I think they stink. I think Mariota stinks. Um, last week, I, I, I was on the Ravens, even though I said I'd never do Mariota games again because every time we do, he does something to screw me. But uh, worked last week, went back at it this week. I made that, however, sloppy job on my part uh, before I knew Gordon was out. If I knew Gordon was out, I probably would have just jumped to the Rams, but that's my bad. Uh, you know, Chargers, clearly the better team, but without the best running back, unable to run the ball at all, uh, and really ahead the whole game, but dodge a bullet when uh, they have a chance to tie it late, but instead of going for the extra point, they go for the win, and a two-point conversion never has a chance. Uh, Chargers get the win, uh, but uh, I have uh, no shot there on the cover, and you know, I took the flip of a coin game. I took the, uh, the Cowboys plus the one and a half at kickoff time, or I should say pre pregame in a line that moved all over the place. One and a half is not enough. <laughs> and I had Detroit by a field goal and unfortunately for you, well, could have worked out, but the Saints plus two and a half win outright. Three wins for the NFL side of the six-pack, which means I obviously didn't throw down any real American dollars on any of those games, which is why they worked in my favor. So if anyone faded that or at least put down money, you're welcome. Quickly, my, us my usual pitiful one and two. <laughs> Quickly to the National Basketball Association. I'd be remiss if I didn't at least bring up what we've seen so far from our Los Angeles Lakers. My let's quick, make this as let, let's yeah. make this as quick as the Rajon Rondo left hand. Yeah, my, right? I'll, I'll say and, this. And let's, and let's get out. My quick point: They've played the Trailblazers. They've played the Rockets, two of the better teams in the West. And they competed. didn't get blown out, and they competed. And it's only the first two games, so the chemistry still isn't close to nearly where fans hopefully will get it to. I don't hate either result. The score looks a little bit lopsided because of the late scoring in the final two minutes or so, but I thought for it being the first two games, I don't hate it. I don't hate it, but here's what I do hate. I hate the lack of defense against Nick Sauskis, who killed him the other night for Portland. <laughs> he's he's not a who, Hall of Famer, Nick Sauskis? Nick I wasn't sure. Yes, that, 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 that Nick Sauskis from Michigan who left too early. And it's, you know, been with more teams, uh, you know, than you, you, than you can imagine in such a short time who killed them from three. And the other thing is really the same thing that killed them last year. They are getting obliterated from the three point line. The Lakers are shooting the ball incredibly well from inside the arc, but from outside the arc, they cannot put the ball in the ocean and it has cost them both games, and that includes LeBron. They cannot shoot the three ball. 
if you can't shoot the three ball, you can't win in the association, period. End of story. And it's unfortunate to see shooting in rhythm with the game on the line and three-pointers needed. The first two names that stick out as the guys that were doing it, Lonzo Ball, Rajon Rondo. (laughs) Well, Lonzo Ball was 50% from from three the other night against Houston. He wasn't awful, but it's also when you needed the basket, that might not be where you want. In the first half against Portland, they did not make a three. Right. So, you know, you go 0 for 15 and a half in an NBA game from three, it's tough to recover. Right. They were right there, and, you know, they made some threes in the second half. But overall, you look at their shooting percentage. At the end of a game, you look at the bottom, and you look at the shooting percentage from three for the Lakers, and it's always, well, always, in two games. You know, it's less than 30%. And you, and you look at the fact that they are being doubled in the number of threes made. All right. Well, you know, if, if you make eight and the other team makes you know, 15, all right, uh, do the math. Right. All right. You know, the discrepancy is pretty simple. You know, 45 to 24, you're outscoring 20 points from three-point range, you're going to lose. And that's what happened in two straight games. It has been exciting. There has been a lot of high moments, and they're definitely drawing people to watch Showtime LA once again. We'll see they're going to be fun to watch. Out. They're going to be entertaining. They've got you know, young guys who have a chance to be really good players, but they've got to determine their roles. They've got to learn to play with LeBron. They've got to do a much better job defensively. And you know, they've got to be able to make three-point shots when they're there. They've got to be able to make three-point shots, open three-point shots in rhythm off of double teams and passes from, Le- from LeBron. And they're not making open threes. It's two games. Right? It's very early. And it will get better. I can guarantee that it will get better. So it's a work in progress. Uh, there's no there's no fake panic here. Uh, you know, it, it's just gonna take it's gonna take time. Plain and simple. The way all things do uh, for them that are new, it, it takes new things a while to be good. Al, it's always a pleasure. Looking forward to some riveting World Series action this coming weekend. Looking forward to talking about it. Hour to wrap up our sports week. I hope everybody has a great week. Enjoy what we both hope is going to be a fabulous World Series uh, and your sports week. Johnny, have a great week. Always a pleasure, my friend, and I will talk to you all and you, my friend, next Sunday night. We'll be back next Monday night, 8 p.m. Eastern time here on Sports Radio America. You can listen at sportsradioamerica.com and interact with the show there as well or find us on the TuneIn app by searching for Sports Radio America. You can also follow John Lund under the same handle on Twitter at London Bridge. Thanks again for listening.